Drafting Archetypes is brought to you by Grey Viking Games. Check them out with our affiliate code link in the description. Hi everyone, this is Sam Black with Drafting Archetypes, and today we are going to discuss blue-white in for any uh, limited group and above patrons uh, of Drafting Archetypes Patreon. Uh, the notes for this episode have been posted, so if you want to follow along, you can pull those up on Patreon, and let's get into it. So, Blue-White is among the best archetypes. On uh, 17 lands, it's currently tied with Blue-Black for the highest win rate at 59.4%. Broadly speaking, this is kind of a traditional Skies-type archetype with a bit of a twist where it's a little bit more or considerably more attrition-focused than Blue-White usually is. You're playing a mix of creatures that naturally have flying and creatures that only have flying when you cast them from the graveyard. So you need to either discard them or trade off with them to get them into the graveyard to get your flyers. So this leads to a bit of a like different game plan where in general you kind of have these implied extra cards in your deck that give you extra ways to use mana, which means that you're a little bit more likely to be favored going long and a little bit more incentivized to trade off, which means that relative to other formats, you're just like more likely to be interested in like high power, low toughness creatures rather than low power, high toughness creatures compared to where blue white often is, where often you think of yourself as wanting like a few high toughness creatures to block on the ground. Here, you're gonna be more likely to just try to trade off with some kind of disturbed creature instead as the way that you're dealing with opposing creatures on the ground. And then obviously the other twist is that because you have these cards that can be cast from the graveyard, milling yourself becomes somewhat more valuable and you can decide how much or how little you're going to lean into that based on exactly how many flashback and disturbed cards you have and how much access to high quality self milling you can find, which is relatively sparse. That's the super big picture stuff. Wanted to get into a lot of individual card notes. So my first step was my traditional sort the filter 17 lands to show me about blue-white and sort uh, various statistics and compare them to find anything notable that I could. For example, Lunark Veteran has the highest game and hand win rate of any common in this archetype, and it's the sixth most played card in the archetype. What that means is that it actually wins more than even Organ Hoarder in blue-white, and that the sample size is not particularly small, and that it's not that a small portion of decks are playing it. We often see pretty weird win rates when cards are played very rarely, where that implies that either they need a specific set of synergies to be good, or something else, you know, maybe it's just like a random outlier in the data. We'll get to a card like that in a minute. But this is a card that's just generally used and generally good, or at least generally performs not just well, but exceptionally well. In fact, I've understated how well it performs. Not only does it perform better than Organ Hoarder, it also outperforms literally every single uncommon in blue-white. in blue -white. So clearly something is going on here where this card is 
just good in the archetype. It is taken later than Oregon Hoarder, obviously. And I think that I am still at the point where I have to leave it as an exercise for the reader to figure out exact or listener or whoever you are to figure out exactly how much you want to conclude that it is underrated or if you want to disagree with that assertion. I suspect, I mean, all of the data suggests that it's at least somewhat underrated. And the thing that I was saying about how blue-white is generally favored in longer games because you have more stuff to spend your mana on lines up with the idea that Lunark Veteran is a good way to get to the long game, especially leaning into the idea that this is a format where blocking is relatively difficult and life totals are relatively important. Like, if you think of this as a format where players start at 16 life instead of 20 because you assume that you're kind of losing some free life to your opponent's decaying zombies, then obviously the lower your starting life total is, the more relatively impactful life gain is, which suggests that the life gained by the Lunark Veteran might be particularly valuable as one possible explanation of what's going on there. And there's another card that I'm going to talk about in a minute that uh, reinforces that idea. Organ Hoarder is the most played card, the second highest game in hand win rate, and also the second highest game played win rate, 2% behind Revenge of the Drowned. So a higher game played win rate than Lunark Veteran. I don't know what exactly you should read into that. These numbers are all pretty similar to each other. Could just be variants. Could be that Decks that play Lunark Veteran are decks that are trying to lean into some particular synergy that has other costs to lean into that lowers the win rate of the deck overall or something. Regardless, all the stats support the, or- the idea that Organ Harder is great, and there are plenty of ways to look at the data that suggests that it is better than Lunark Veteran, which is not the least bit hard to believe. Organ Hoarder is both exceptionally good and exceptionally bad in blue-white relative to its positioning in other decks. What I mean by that is the self-mill portion is better than it would be in other places because you're more likely to have cards that are active in the graveyard, but the add a card to your hand part is a little bit less valuable than it would be in other places because you're just more likely to have stuff to spend your mana on. Neither of those are particularly big deals, and I would say that it all washes out to Organ Hoarder is very good everywhere and about as good in blue-white as it is anywhere else. Baithook, Angler, Morning Patrol, and Gale Drifter, the remaining common disturbed creatures outside of Lunark Veteran, are all very highly played in blue-white. They're basically right, they're all right after Organ Hoarder and I believe right above Shipwreck Sifters. Them plus Shipwreck Sifters is kind of like the blue-white package. Like the, the the disturbed creatures are kind of the thing that offers the unique identity to what blue-white is doing. And then Shipwreck Sifters is kind of the like glue that ties it all together in terms of saying, hey, you really want a lot of this because uh, Shipwreck Sifters is a good payoff. The more of them and the more disturbed stuff you have in a way that gets you to try to collect all of it together. Where if you didn't have Shipwreck Sifter, you might say, okay, I want a little bit of disturbed stuff so that I can essentially like get some extra stuff to spend my mana on, but I don't necessarily need a lot of it because the more I have, the more likely I am to just not get around to casting all of it from my graveyard because it ends up being mana intensive. But Shipwreck Sifters is the card that kind of like outweighs that and says, no, really, just draft a bunch of these so that I work and so that you can get me more of me and we can all be very good. 
Shipwreck Sifter is very good, is very played in this archetype because other people don't watch it as much. And where it's like, you know, kind of a linchpin synergy piece, but it is a synergy piece, which is to say that it does ask you to build your deck in a certain way. And you might have to make certain concessions to draft the cards that it wants to build your deck in that way. But it is an example of a successful synergy piece. And that can be kind of like statistically or numerically verified by seeing that it's game played win rate, uh, which is to say the overall strength of decks that it's in is not really exceptionally low relative to how much it itself wins. So it is very, very, very slightly lower. So you can look at the stats and see, oh, there are costs to drafting to enable this, which should be obvious. But it's kind of trivially lower, and then Shipwreck Sifters itself uh, has a high win rate, which makes me think that it is worth doing. You pay a very small cost when you, you know, to the deck overall to get a very good card. Next up, the Disturbed Creatures are all more played than the kind of generally good blue and white cards, like Search Party Captain, Revenge of the Drowned, and Falcon Abomination. Those are all less played than the Disturbed Creatures, but they all have higher game-in-hand win rates than the non-Lunark veteran Disturbed Creatures, which is to say that people do seem to potentially be... Well, one of two things is happening. Either people are over-prioritizing the Disturbed Creatures when they're blue-white in anticipation of or because of Shipwreck Sifters or just because that's what they think the deck should do. Or somewhat more likely, these cards are less played because there's more competition for them because they're generally good, so the other decks are prioritizing them more than the other decks are prioritizing the Disturbed Creatures, which would make sense. And basically, this is to say that even when you are blue-white, unless you're very Sifter-rich, you probably want to be prioritizing those generally good cards, Search Party Captain, Revenge of the Drowned, and Falcon Abomination, over the Disturbed Creatures. There's one really weird outlier when you look at the common stats for blue-white, which is Jack-O-Lantern. Jack-O-Lantern has the third highest game and hand win rate of any common at 63.5%, which is truly exceptionally great. This is over an incredibly small sample size, around 300 times entering hand compared to like Oregon Hoarder's 9,000 and something. So I would take it with a grain of salt, but it's an interesting card to talk about just in terms of looking at it as a data point in understanding how to evaluate the statistics in 17 lands in general. It notably has the highest game in hand, or sorry, the highest improvement when drawn of any common in this archetype. And the reason for that isn't that it's great. The reason for that is that the decks that use it win substantially less often when they don't draw it, which makes sense if you're using Jack-O-Lantern as a linchpin to enable a splash. Anytime you don't draw it, you're more likely to draw a splash card that you can't cast and have effectively mulliganed. It seems to be that people are using Jack-O-Lantern to enable particularly strong splashes, and when they draw it, that's working out because they can cast their powerful cards, and when they don't, they can't cast their powerful cards and they lose more often. One example of this might be Splashing Lysa, 
Forgotten Angel, the white, white, black to Super Baneslayer Angel thing. That card has an extremely high win rate um, in blue, black, or in blue, white, rather, uh, even though it is a black card. I do think it's worth splashing. Jack Lantern is a reasonable card to include in a blue, white deck to try to splash it. But it might be the case that you know, when you do that, the fact that you have a card like Lisa in your deck means that when you cast it, you win a lot and Jack Lantern stats go up. But when you put it in your deck and fail to cast it because you didn't draw your Jack Lantern, you lose more often. All of this is to say there is like, as I mentioned, you can choose how much to lean into milling yourself in blue white. And the more you mill yourself, the better Jack-O-Lantern is because it can kind of like spike this free fixing value in your graveyard if you are both milling yourself and splashing something. And there is data that it does something good when you play it. But there is also data that says that your deck doesn't win as much when you try playing Jack-O-Lantern as when you don't. So I would say ultimately proceed with extreme caution when using Jack Lantern, or more broadly, when splashing in this format, which I've generally found difficult and or not worth doing. Maybe the biggest takeaway is certainly don't use it to splash cards that are not exceptional. Next card to talk about, I mentioned I would get to this one, Blessed Defiance, 62% game and hand win rate, sixth highest common in the archetype, and it is only played about a sixth as often as Organ Hoarder. So if you look at how frequently cards win relative to how frequently they're played. This card is a pretty big exception that it wins way more than the amount that it is played would imply, indicating that people are underrating and or at least underplaying it. This is the latest in a long line of cards like this in that it seems that basically every set has a combat trick that costs single white mana that wins disproportionately to how much people play it. With Blessed Defiance in particular, I would argue that it is particularly good in blue-white because of both the fact that blue-white is interested in trading frequently, which this card helps you do. It allows you to trade up with a disturbed creature while both putting the creature in your graveyard to be able to cast it and giving you an additional flyer and also giving you a life boost, which... Um, is the other reason that this card is particularly good in this format, for the same reason that Lunark Veteran is particularly good. You mentioned that life gaining, like gaining life, is just a little bit more likely to be valuable, and that makes the lifelink offered by this card a little bit better. It is interesting to note that this card has a reasonable buyout mode of simply cast it on a decayed zombie to deal two extra damage to your opponent, gain four additional life, and make a one-one flyer which if you think about just like imagine a 1-1 one, one flyer for one rather than a combat trick and think of that as what this card is. Now it's a 1-1 one, one flyer for one that you can't cast on turn one. You can't cast it until you have a zombie. But then when you do cast it, you immediately like deal two damage to your opponent and gain four, which would be pretty exceptional text on a 1-1 one, one flyer. Compare that, for example, to Vampire Spawn, where dealing two damage to your opponent and gaining two life was sufficient to make a three mana two three go from a below average, you know, bottom tier filler card to one of the top creatures. So if you think about just like that amount of life swinginess added to a one one for one, what that would do to the card. 
And then when you like think about that, plus it just being a combat trick, potentially allowing you to kill a larger creature than you might otherwise kill, it's not really that hard to see how it could potentially be powerful. I would also anecdotally say that the little bit that I've played it, it has generally performed reasonably well. Obviously, if you prioritize this highly, you can end up with a lot of them. I suspect that that's not the correct way to go with this. I think that it's more just your white decks should usually play one, maybe two of them to just a little bit of it is very impactful in terms of a tempo swing. Anytime you're racing, the more likely your deck is to be racing, the more interested in that you should be. Uh, similarly, the more likely you are to want to trade creatures, the better it is. If you're looking for a combat trick to protect your creatures because you're playing large creatures that are valuable, A, you're doing it wrong for this format, and B, you don't want Bless Defiance. If you're looking for a combat trick that's going to allow your cheap creatures that would like to die to trade up with your opponent's better creatures, this might be the card for you. Next up, I have a traditional way to scan for traps. I look for... I sort the cards by how frequently they're played and then just kind of skim down the game and hand win rate list to look for something that wins exceptionally little relative to the numbers around it when sorted by how much it's played to find any outliers that are played way more than they should be. And there is one card that particularly stood out and it was not surprising to me in any way, particularly after having seen Charm Sleep stand out in this exact sort in this same archetype in Adventures in the Forgotten Realms. As some of you may have been able to suss out at this point, that card is Lachlan Cemetery, which stands out in this format as being the biggest trap. I don't know what else I can do. I hope that the people playing this are not regular listeners of mine. I call out these cards as being overvalued and generally bad as frequently as I have an excuse to. If you are prioritizing and playing auras that attempt to function as removal spells in general in limited, please stop. If you have specific reason to believe that one is exceptional, that's okay. As a baseline, think of these as bad cards rather than good cards when encountering a new format, and that continues to be true here. Notably, Candle Trap is substantially less of a trap than Locked in a Cemetery. It is played slightly less often, but wins considerably more often. I don't think Candle Trap is very good if you are attacking on the ground because it's a very expensive removal spell that largely functions as a considerably worse silver bolt. However, in blue-white, where you are likely attacking on the air and where giving a creature defender for one mana is pretty valuable, I do think that uh, Candle Trap can play pretty well in blue-white, particularly if you are good at using its activated ability to exile creatures. Turning it into something that actually exiles a creature rather than merely stopping it from doing damage attacking is quite a bit better than you know, general aura-based removal spells are. Candle Trap is okay, and this is an archetype where it's particularly okay. Note, it's still not better than, like, any of the other cards I've mentioned, but it is a card that you shouldn't be, like, ashamed of putting in your deck. Maybe more on that later. The next thing I did is I looked at the inverse of looking for a trap. I looked for cards 
that are not played very much and do win a lot. As I've already told you, Jack-O-Lantern ended up being the most notable standout there, being barely played and winning a lot. But I've already discussed that and mostly don't think that it means that you should be playing it more frequently. The card that next stood out as having exception stats sort of that way is Larder Zombie, which is a card that I think is underplayed. Larder Zombie wins uh, 59.6% of the time, which is 0.2% of the time more than this deck on average, which is to say that it is very slightly good. But for a card that goes very late, winning very slightly more than the deck wins with average cards is good. That's what you're looking to spend late picks on. This deck, especially if you're playing Lunark Veterans and properly value, like if you're properly valuing cards based on how much they win and then playing a lot of cards like Lunark Veteran and prioritizing the zombie makers over the other disturbed creatures, you are particularly likely to have a lot of creatures that don't do very much in combat, which makes Larder Zombie particularly easy to use frequently. Also, if you're playing blue-white, you're likely to have cards that are active in the graveyard, meaning that the mill from Larder Zombie is good on top of simply allowing you to choose which card you're drawing. So this is a very good archetype for Larder Zombie. Also, there is something that I haven't gotten to try yet that I really want to, which is using a bunch of this like stuff that I talked about just now that works with Larder Zombie, basically like cheap creatures that block well and gain life and value creatures with Larder Zombies and two Devious Cover-Ups. I tried Devious Cover-Up early in the format in kind of like a low creature control deck and found that there were too many value creatures and my like removal plus Devious Cover-Ups just fell behind and that wasn't good. But I think that if you have a bunch of like good early creatures that block well and provide value with Larder Zombie to kind of like clear through your deck and devious cover up to reuse your good cards. That sounds like a shell that's worth thinking about and exploring. And in that shell, I would really want to have a candle trap so that my late game could involve recurring a like hard removal spell as part of cycling through my deck with devious cover ups. I think that that's something to keep an eye out for, something that I'm going to be keeping an eye out for that I haven't actually done yet, but I'm somewhat optimistic about as a specific use case for Larder Zombie, but I also think Larder Zombie is good in general use scenarios. The last card that stood out as winning more than it is played, like winning a lot while being underplayed, is Blessed Divines, which I've already talked about. So I also looked for uncommon traps, and the biggest uncommon trap was Beloved Beggar, the two mana 04 that has Disturbed to play as a 4-4 Flying Vigilance creature. Obviously, casting a 4-4 Flying Vigilance creature from your graveyard, very good. If you are good at milling yourself, good at discarding this card, it's fine to put in your deck. But if you are planning to just cast this and hope it somehow dies, I suspect that it's going to be performing very poorly since... It does poorly overall, and presumably a reasonable portion of the people playing it are playing it when it's actually good, which means that if you're playing it when it's not actually good, it should be expected to be winning 
even less than its 56.5% that it's currently winning. Be really careful about playing this if you don't have sufficient ways to free roll it into your graveyard, which if you don't have a way to sacrifice it, and ways to sacrifice it outside of black are pretty rare, it's going to be harder than you think. Like you're going to draw it and not have a way to get it in your graveyard fairly often. I think this card is quite a bit better. I didn't actually verify this with the stats, but I, I suspect that it's quite a bit better in white-black than it is in white-blue, and I would say proceed with caution on Beloved Beggar in white-blue. The card that most stood out as the uncommon that most stood out as having a high win rate and a low play rate is Ominous Roost, which has a game in hand win rate over 60%, which is, you know, above average, but not like exceptional. But I do worry that its game played win rate, you know, somewhat appreciably below average, which makes sense. It's a card that requires a certain kind of deck, specific support. You have to draft around it and get enough stuff that's actually going to get cast out of your graveyard or enough self mill or whatever to make it work. This is another has potential, but proceed with caution type card. If you are naturally, like if you're already set up to use it well, if you basically, if you already have a good shipwreck sifter deck, this is a, probably a likely, probably a good card to also include in it. But I don't think that you want to like take ominous roost early and then like go out of your way to make it happen and hope that it works out. But if you are if you have gotten there in the Sifter version of this deck, you should probably play Ominous Roost based on the stats. Scab Wrangler stood out in a different way. This card's just obviously great, but outside of its game and hand win rate being good, it had an exceptional game played win rate, which is interesting because that's kind of weird. Um... <laughs> What it suggests to me is that the pressure that it puts on people in drafting encourages them to make better decisions rather than worse decisions. So where in general, a synergy piece might lower your game played win rate relative to its stats because you have to like go out of your way to support it. A card that tells you to like more highly value Falcon Abomination, for example, might increase your win rate by getting you to correctly take a Falcon Abomination where you might have incorrectly taken, say, a Disturbed Creature over it instead. Basically, I think that most of the, like, go-wide zombie stuff is stronger than the Disturbed stuff, and Scab Wrangler is likely to push you toward the zombie stuff, which is my best guess as to what would account for it having a particularly high game played win rate. You do not have to go out of your way to make Scab Wrangler good. In fact, Scab Wrangler will lead you down a path to be making correct decisions anyway. Those are the individual card notes that I uh, came up with in my um, studying the stats. I also jotted down the notable top rares and mythics and top uncommons. Shouldn't be a lot of surprises here. The best rares and mythics, um, so just the best cards in this archetype. Intrepid Adversary, maybe slightly surprisingly taking the number one slot. Intrepid Adversary is the 3-1 lifelink kicker to put plus one, plus one counters on it, and then it pumps up your team for its counters, followed by Brutal Cathar. Brutal Cathar is the werewolf that exiles your opponent's creatures. Vanquish the Horde, the sweeper that costs less mana for creatures you control. 
Suspicious Stowaway, the unblockable werewolf that loots and draws cards rather than looting on the backside. Grafted Identity, the Mind Control, Denic Pious Apprentice, the uh, rare blue-white 2-3 lifelinker, Lisa Forgotten Archangel, the white-black legendary angel with flying lifelink and a bunch of other text that has a very high win rate when you splash it, and Adeline Resplendent Cathar, the X4 that makes creatures. So those are the top eight cards in the archetype. Number nine, again, is Lunark Veteran. Not Overwhelmed Archivist, the best uncommon. Not a different rarer mythic. Number nine is Lunark Veteran. The best performing uncommon, coming in a little behind Lunark Veteran, is Overwhelmed Archivist. Three mana, three two, that loots when you play it and has Disturbed. Followed by Ambitious Farmhand. The one one that uh, searches for a land and then can flip into a 3-3 lifelinker, searches for a planes. Gavany Dawnguard, the 3-3 ward one that finds creatures when you flip between day and night. Borrowed Time, the Oblivion Ring. Devoted Graph Keeper, the blue-white uh, uncommon gold creature. Scab Wrangler, 2-1 that lets you tap things that I've discussed. Phantom Carriage, the 4-4 flyer that entombs something. Chaplain of Arms, the weaker uncommon Lunark veteran. Ominous Roost, which I've discussed. Neville get the enchantment that makes one ones that can only block flyers when you play things from your graveyard. Neville Gast Intruder, the 2-1 Flash Flyer that shrinks something when it enters the battlefield, which honestly I would have expected to be a little bit better than this. Fading Hope, the unsummon that sometimes scries. Craft Trainer and Covetous Castaway are the remaining cards that have an above average, like a game in hand win rate that is above the average win rate for the archetype. Dual Craft Trainer being the 3-3 that, uh, 3-3 first strike that can give something double strike with Coven, and Covetous Castaway being the 2-mana 1-3 that disturbs into a 3-4 flyer. Somewhere along the lines, I've now covered all of the best cards in this archetype with a bunch of notes, um, which means I've told you what I have to tell you. So going to turn it over to Twitch chat for questions. Any questions that you've already asked that you feel I haven't addressed, please ask again. Any questions you haven't asked that I haven't addressed, also great, hit me with those too. I would like to, while waiting for hopefully some of those to come in, thank my new patrons for the last two weeks. So thank you very much to Andy, Matt, Ultraviolet Sasquatch, Pyroheart Alpha, and Gabriel for your support. Really appreciate it. For anyone else who's interested in supporting the podcast, getting access to notes, getting to vote for what archetypes I'll be covering in upcoming weeks, which for this set is a little higher stakes than it has been for previous sets, as due to the short time frame before the next release, I will not be getting to all of the archetypes. Check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash drafting archetypes. See if it appeals to you. First question, how do you feel about Phantom Carriage? It seems like it should be clunky, but seems to crush me every time it's cast against me. Does it possibly speak to the lack of things to do with a mana late game or no? So first off, top level view, uh, it has a 61.7% game in hand win rate among the top uncommons, which puts it ahead of all but the best commons. Um, I think it's behind... Lunark Veteran and Organ Hoarder likely behind Revenge of the Drowned, but I'm not totally sure about that, but ahead of like the other common creatures, I believe. 
it, the stats suggest that it is good. Also, it totally dominates the skies, right? Like there is nothing outside of rare that beats it. There are multiple three fours in the set with flying and like no other four power flying creatures outside of uh, Beloved Beggar and rare mythics. And then obviously the fourth toughness gets it out of range of Bolt and Slash. That's Moonrager Slash and Silverbolt. The numbers line up well. It does rule the skies. And then also if your opponent does kill it, uh, you've gotten some value, which is pretty good. Obviously, I do think that you want to be very curve conscious with this deck because you're expecting to have cheap cards that have more expensive backsides give you mana sinks. But as far as six drops go, I think this is the best you can do maybe in the set as a whole, at the very least outside of rare mythic. But I don't even think there's a good rare mythic that costs six specifically. I think it's totally reasonable to have a six drop and this is the one you want. It's basically the summary of that. Next question, would I play Ominous Roof Roost over Flip the Switch with 10 Disturbed Creatures? Yeah, I guess. I mean, I'm assuming that Flip the Switch is like guaranteed to be my worst card. In general, I'm not looking to cut Flip the Switch, but it is like I can imagine a deck where it's the card to go. And I do think that I would want to put Ominous Roost in my deck with 10 Disturbed Creatures. Obviously, it's going to be better than more of those Disturbed Creatures are Lunark Veterans. Since Lunark Veteran is going to gain life, like going to be the cheapest way to trigger it, going to gain life when I'm triggering it, going to help make sure that I don't die uh, because my 1-1 Flyers can't block or whatever. And also note, Grain of Salt, I have never had Ominous Roost in my deck myself. But my expectation would be that with 10 Disturbed Creatures, more often than not, it's going to be a better card than Flip the Switch. Pointed out that Purifying Dragon is a 4-power flying creature. That is true. Um, so that's another thing that can trade with Phantom Carriage. How do I feel about Faithful Absence? Hard removal, which is lacking in blue-white, gives them a card. I have noticed in general that viewers of my stream are more likely than I am to be concerned about like the concept of a deck not having hard removal. I'm not super attached to it, and I think that Faithful Absence generally ends up not doing especially well. So I'm fine just not taking or playing it. If I end up with it, I would likely put it in some versions of the deck. In particular, I think like if I were doing the thing that I talked about where I wanted Candle Trap, the Devious Cover-Up Larder Zombie plan, that would be a card that I would want access to when I'm looping through my deck to be able to like kill other creatures eventually. But it's not a card that I want to prioritize, and because I'm not willing to prioritize it, and it is drafted highly, I suspect that I will very rarely, if ever, have the opportunity to put it in my deck. Do I think I need at least one copy of Devious Cover-Up to prevent myself from milling, especially since the archetype can take a while before you stabilize and attack, especially in mirrors? I certainly don't think you need one. There are other ways to just play cards that help kill your opponent. For example, in that spot, you could just play like a Drownyard Amalgam and try to kill them with that if you're worried about your ability to kill them. I have, I believe, never decked myself in this format. No, wait, I think I did once. Yeah, I did once in blue-green with a lot of self-mill. But I don't think blue-white is generally good enough at milling itself, that in general, that's something that I'm going to be worried about in blue-white. 
I do think that there is a specific way to draft around devious cover-up where you try to mill yourself, and if your goal is to mill yourself, I do think you might be able to, but if I don't have devious cover-up, I just wouldn't try to do that, and I would generally expect the games to end one way or another without it coming down to mill. Next question. Does the card selection of blue do enough to make splashing an attractive option to draft around it? If this is, do I want to prioritize blue selections so that I am prepared to splash, so that I can then like look for something to splash? Not advise doing that. Like there are formats where you just like take fixing and you say, okay, cool, now I can splash good removal that I see or whatever. I don't think that's what's going on here. Like there are no commons that I like want to be in a position to splash. I'm only going to try to splash something like Laisa or some other like true bomb. And so I would say there is enough like card selection plus like jack-o'-lantern and evolving wilds that if I do get a true bomb outside of blue-white, I would be willing to splash it in blue-white. But I don't think that you should like start by trying to put yourself in a position to do that before you have the thing that's worth splashing. Next question. Do you need to have several ways to loot for sifters to be good? No. So basically the only ways that you're going to be looting, I believe, are with... Well, there's Sifters and Overwhelmed Archivist and I suppose the Blue-White Gold Uncommon, uh, Faithless Looting type thing, Faithless Mending or something. I think that you more often than not are not looking to play the card that I'm currently guessing is called Faithless Mending, um, the draw two, discard two flashback card. And you would like more Sifters if you have Sifters. You would also like Ambitious Farm, or I mean, uh, Overwhelmed Archivist if you have Faithful Mending, not Faithless Mending, sorry. Um, anyway, you are definitely looking for overwhelmed archivist and sifters to go with sifters, but the basic, so the basic, the like impetus for this question is the fact that they get bigger whenever you discard a spirit or disturbed creature indicating that they have the ability to get bigger than two, three, if you are doing more of that. However, I think that just two mana, two, three draw a card, discard a disturbed thing is enough value that it's good by itself. And then it's just more good if you have more looting. But really the like barrier to entry for me is less access to more ways to loot and more sufficient access to things that you want to discard to power up to power it up in the first place. Next question is about Covetous Castaway and how it compares to Beloved Beggar. So Beloved Beggar has a 56.5% game in hand win rate compared to Covetous Castaway's 59.8. The extra power uh, makes it kind of like function as a real creature. Also, the lower toughness makes it easier to get it killed when that's your goal. Also, milling yourself when you play it can give you value up front. And also, I think even just the uh, cast from the graveyard half is better. I think that the cheaper creature that shuffles stuff in is better than paying the extra mana for the extra power and vigilance. Though I would say that the back sides are closer than the front sides are. So the front side of Devious Castaway is more better than the front side of Beloved Beggar relative to any comparison on the back. The answer is overall Covetous Castaway is good, not exceptional. It is as good as the like good but not 
absolute but not exceptional uh, common creatures. So not as good as Lunark Veteran and Organ Hoarder, but roughly as good as the other common creatures. Obviously, similar incentives do apply. The better you are at getting in your graveyard and everything, the better it is. But I think the baseline here is do play it rather than the baseline being don't play it. Next question, thoughts on playing multiple candle traps in a blue-white deck? I think it is fine to play multiple candle traps. Um, I think that, uh, yeah, I mean, basically it's a fine card. If you have multiples of them, it's fine. I do think that you want to, the more of them you have, the more you should worry about like how consistently you're actually getting Coven because most likely all of your creatures or a vast majority of your creatures have exactly one, two, or three power, which means that if you happen to have relatively few of one of those numbers, it might be difficult to get Coven. Specifically, it's not hard to imagine a blue-white deck where a vast majority of your creatures have exactly two or three power. And in that case, I would be somewhat more down on Candle Trap. Next question, how do you balance picking up Sifters versus picking up Disturbed Creatures? A lot of that is going to be about like reading the table in terms of whether it seems like you're fighting someone else for blue-white or not. If you're not fighting someone for blue-white, you can try to table the sifters. But if you are fighting for someone for blue-white, then you probably can't table the sifters. And the sifters are better, but only if you have enough disturbed creatures. And hitting critical mass... Basically, I mean, the answer is... Early in the draft, I'm going to prioritize the blue-white creatures and try to t- the disturbed creatures and try to table the sifter. If I table the sifter, I'm going to continue trying to do that. If I don't table the sifter, but I end up with enough disturbed creatures that I definitely want sifter, then by the end of the draft, I would prioritize sifters over disturbed creatures. But I wouldn't prioritize sifter over disturbed creatures until. I know that I want to play the sifter. Um, Next, do any single uh, colored common or uncommon cards in blue-white push me into blue-white over another color combination? Like early Lunark Veterans compared to Overwhelmed Archivist. I don't really know how to, uh, like, are you saying is there a a common or uncommon that's so good that I would abandon another color? Or are you just, like, obviously my default is I'm gonna, like, take the best cards and sometimes those are going to be blue white and that's what's going to put me into blue white i guess maybe the question here is is there a card that is one of those colors that makes me specifically want to be the other one uh for example shipwreck sifters specifically pushing me to be white once i am blue i think shipwreck sifter is the only card that really cares about being specifically blue white so that's the only one that i'm going to take and say okay, I'm blue-white, and most often I'm not going to take that early, but it is possible that maybe like unassigned blue pick five through seven and I see a sifter and take that as a sign that I should go into blue-white. That's going to be informed by, you know, what kind of stuff I'm seeing around it, whether I think blue-white, whether I think white's open or not. I think that's about as precise as I can go for that question. Next question. I saw Ham playing Otherworldly Gaze in blue-white. Do I think it's playable? So I also saw Ham tweet about that deck. The Ham TV uh, posted a YouTube video about a blue-white deck that uh, he drafted 
that featured a large number, I think, of otherworldly gazes and splashed uh, red for the card that I'm not remembering the name of that makes a creature with power and toughness equal to the number of instants and sorceries in your graveyard. Uh, two copies of that and really leaned into self-mill and played very few creatures. Uh, Seize the Storm. Le- leaned into self-mill, played very few creatures. Generally functioned very differently from how most blue-white decks are going to play. I think that that deck was probably good and that Otherworldly Gaze was playable in precisely that deck. Having seen that deck, I considered mentioning it as kind of like a variant sub-archetype that you can look for in blue-white, but I ultimately concluded that that's more of an exceptional deck that can emerge in draft, which is part of what makes draft great and exceptional players like him awesome and awesome to watch is the ability to find those decks when you happen to be in a space where it just naturally comes together for the most part i would say it's less oh blue white can do this self mill thing and more if you happen to notice a couple sees the storms and sees the opportunity to move into that as part of a blue white deck that is using the various like self mill aspects in blue white while finding ways to keep your spell count high you can end up in exactly that deck but there are just certain decks that come up in limited that you can't really expect to repeat, maybe even if you're specifically trying to do so. And I suspect that that was likely one of them. I mean, that's not to say that you can't draft a Seize the Storm when you storm and you see it and try to be an otherworldly gaze Seize the Storm deck. It is to say that that's not like a natural pivot from blue-white. That's more of like a sub-archetype of blue-red, obviously, since Seize the Storm is red card. As to the bigger question, is Otherworldly Gaze playable? That raises questions about your definition of playable, obviously, as I have acknowledged that it was probably good in that deck. Most cards are playable in incredibly niche circumstances. Uh, I would say that Otherworldly Gaze is likely not going to be worth it in blue-white, but that there are... Uh, possible exceptional circumstances in the format where that card can uh, be played. Next question, how many larder zombies would I want? I think two is like the realistic answer to the number that I want. I do think that it's reasonable to play a second rather than just a first, and I think three is very likely to be too much. It is like a low impact. Well, the second one is an incredibly low impact card, and the first one is a slow impact card. You definitely need to be careful about drawing too much of that. I believe that catches me up on questions that are in the scope of this podcast. So going to wrap this up now. Uh, Thanks everyone for tuning in. And um, I will be opening the poll to patrons for my next topic. So I can't tell you what I'll be talking about next week, but the patrons among you can tell me what we'll be talking about next week. I'll see everyone then, or more accurately, you'll see me then, if you uh, choose to tune back in. Thank you, everyone, and goodbye.